Today's sermon text is Acts 9, verses 19 through 31. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief of, chief of priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're continuing our series through the book of Acts. Once we get to Acts chapter 12 and we finish Acts chapter 12, um, we will take a short break for the rest of the summer and jump back in a little bit later. Acts chapter 9. Last week, we looked at the conversion of Saul. Um, this Saul who would later become known as the Apostle Paul, and we focused on three elements related to not only his conversion, but our conversion as well. And we just marveled at the, the grace and the patience and the love and the plan of God that he has for us. Now, this week, I want us to consider what happens to us after we meet Jesus. So last week, we considered what happened to Paul when he met Jesus, and now I want us to consider what happened to Saul, what happens to us after we encounter Jesus. What happened to Saul after he met Jesus, and what happens to us? You see, um, just kind of a Bible study tip here. When you're reading a book like Acts, Luke is a masterful storyteller, and, and if you notice, I hope you've picked up on this, Acts is very different from, say, Romans, it's very different from, from all of Paul's letters. It's similar to the Gospels. It's, it's more of a narrative. Luke is telling a story. He's telling a story of the early church. He has very few comments of his own. You notice this, right? I mean, even whenever he has a comment that is outside a story, it's still just like verse 31 in chapter 9. Look at verse 31. It's still just descriptive. It says um, in verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and, Gal and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. He doesn't then say, and here's what that means for you. Here's what you should do. There are very few, if any, commands from Luke in the book of Acts. It is a story. And so when you come to a story in the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, you have to ask two questions. First, what, what is here? What's he saying? And that's where, you know, if you're doing Bible study, you could take, this is what I, by the way, this is what I do every single uh, uh, Tuesday whenever I start sermon prep. 
um, or whenever the day is that I start it, sometimes it can't be on Tuesday, it ends up on Wednesday. Whenever I start sermon prep and I'm in the book of Acts, I literally just write the verses out and I reword, I just summarize. I'll look at the first two verses, okay, are these two together? Are they basically about the same thing? Okay, now I'm going to summarize this. What's, what's Luke essentially saying? So it's really important to know what he's saying and have a grasp on what's, what's actually happening. But then from there, this is such a really important question to ask. Why did Luke choose to include this in his story at this point in the story? Why? Why did he choose? Because you know, for example, Saul, as he's going to the synagogues, he's preaching lots of things. You know, Saul, I mean, we know from the Apostle Paul, this man is like, he is, he's not bashful, okay? He is bold in his proclamation, and he is covering, he is an expert of experts in the Old Testament. And so he's probably bringing out all these things to show how they're fulfilled in Jesus over and over again. But what does Luke tell us? Luke says, and he started proclaiming, saying, he is the Son of God. And then he moves on. Why? It's important for us, right? You stop whenever you're doing Bible study through the book of Acts, and you ask yourself, Why? Why did he only include that? What's important about it? And so as we consider this section, when I first read it, I was like, okay, this is a little underwhelming, you know, especially after we saw his, his miraculous, you know, conversion. And it's like, what, what can I make of this? And so I started asking myself, why is this here? Why is it important for us today, for the original readers of Acts? Why, was it, impor- why is it important for us to know what Saul did very shortly after he came to faith in Jesus? Sometimes in life, things happen to us that just change us. They just change us. When, when some, some things, when they happen to us, we're never the same. We're different. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think about athletes. You know, I played sports, you know, in high school. Um, you know, that's why I'm in such great shape today, you know. Um, but... Uh, playing sports sometimes athletes will experience injuries and and those injuries sometimes change the way a player has to play the game they they have to changes for them because of the injury um you know most recently i think we all could say this global health pandemic that we went through it changed a lot of the world it changed you know how we buy groceries it it changed a lot of the things some of you started washing your hands for the first time you know you were like you know i think i think i can get on board with this um it was not very clean before. Um, but, you know, it changed. For some of you, it's changed the way that you work. I mean, some of you might not even be back in an office. And some of your workplaces may be saying, you know what, remote only from now on. And so it, it changed. Um, for some of us, when we met our spouses, our lives radically changed. And hopefully for the good, they radically changed, you know. I know that my life radically changed whenever I met Erica. And she's probably thinking the exact same things. Never been the same. Wish I could go back. Um, you know, sometimes I wish I could go back because the creation of social media changed so much about how we function in the world. I wish I could go back in time to Mark Zuckerberg's Harvard dorm room and just say, bro, look, just don't. Just, just don't, no, cool idea. You know, you're, you're going to make a ton of money, but uh, just don't because, you know, aunts and uncles, they just share the weirdest memes on social media. So just, you know, let's, let's just not do that. Ideas. Ideas can change not only the world, but you as a person. I, I think of the movie Inception. If you've never seen the movie Inception, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And in that movie, um, 
something that's highlighted in it, and it's that the implantation of one simple idea in the back recesses of a person's mind can forever change everything about them, even how they view their own reality. Saul was deeply changed by Jesus from the inside out, and this is why Luke wants to put it here right after his conversion. He wants to show what happened to Saul and what happens to a person after they encounter Jesus. Saul experienced this 180-degree turn in his heart, and it's reflected now in the way that he lived. And this change was not temporary, and it was not superficial. He was really different. That's what Luke is highlighting for us here. He was really different, and the reason is because he encountered the real Jesus. And that's what's before us right now. How have our lives changed to reflect the inner change because we've met Jesus. And maybe out of this, you come away with the sobering reality, I don't know that I actually have met Jesus. And if so, that's okay. There is grace. Saul experienced radical changes in the message that he preached, in the mission that he lived, and in the relationships that he held. And all of those changes stemmed from this one singular event Saul encountered Jesus. And when he encountered Jesus, everything changed. So I want to share two ways an encounter with Jesus changes us. First, encountering Jesus transforms our message and our mission. And and second, encountering Jesus transforms our relationships. It can lead to both rejection from some and then acceptance, hopefully, prayerfully, from the church. Okay, first. Encountering Jesus transforms our message and mission. All right, so Saul, now what we're seeing here, as, as uh, Luke shifts things for us, he, he says in verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So this is after his conversion, after his baptism, after he receives the Holy Spirit, and after he finally gets something to eat. It says that for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and then in verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. This is a radically different message than the one that he was preaching, teaching, and believing before. You see, before, Saul believed and he taught that salvation came through the law, okay? In order to be right with God, you had to keep the covenant, which meant essentially keeping the law. Saul, as we learned last week, was a Pharisee, and Pharisees were so passionate about law-keeping that they would explain various aspects of the law. They would look at the law and be like, okay, here's a command, but here's what that means. Here's how you can live that out. And as they did that, they, they did it to be helpful to Jews as they're trying to keep the law. It's like, well, I see this command here, but like in my daily life, how does this help? And they just you know, tried to help them, like say, okay, here's, here's what this means. When it, mean, when, when it says rest on the Sabbath, you don't do absolutely nothing. You cannot do any work at all. Or they would just explain it in various ways. Um, and eventually, uh, some of these Pharisee, Pharisaical explanations became de facto laws unto themselves, which is obviously as you journey through the Gospels, you see Jesus just driving uh, through that. Okay? Um, now, Paul, or Saul, in Deuteronomy 6, there's this prayer. Avery read it earlier, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one, the Lord our God. And, and so, um, throughout that, there are all these, like, commands. And this was a prayer that Saul would have prayed every single day. And this prayer informed his theology. Saul, before, believed and taught that in order to be right with God, you had to keep the law. 
You had to, and, and, which essentially meant that if you were going to be right with God, you had to become Jewish, at least religiously. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to be right with God, you had to become culturally, religiously Jewish, and that was the only way for you to be saved. Well, now what do we see? Now we see that, that Saul is going to a synagogue, and he's not proclaiming the law, he's proclaiming Jesus. I love how Luke says that. He, he goes into the synagogues and he's proclaiming Jesus, saying he is the Son of God. Saul now believes, and he now teaches that salvation comes only through Jesus. When Saul met Jesus, everything changed about his message, his theology, what he believed. Once Saul met Jesus, his entire theological system was altered. Now, what changed for him? Because this is, this is really short, and, you know, granted, Luke doesn't give us every single detail. It's not like he's, you know, keeping a, a journal of every single moment in Saul's life at this time. He's intentional in what he includes. But what really changed for him? It's not like he had spent time with, with Peter or John or James and sat under their teaching to learn more about Jesus. What, what changed for him? What changed was Saul now believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Saul now believes that Jesus, in other words, is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited, the promised one. He is the Messiah who has come to reign over the world. Now, why does Luke focus on this one detail? As I said earlier, we have to ask that question. Why does he focus on this one detail? He is the Son of God. This is what Saul preached. Like, really? That's all he said? That would be awesome, by the way. If I could just walk in this place week after week and just stand up here and we go through all our motions and I say, Jesus is the Son of God. Thank you. Let's pray. And then just like walk down. You guys be like, hey, that's sufficient for me. Like, I'm good. Um, but you know he preached more than that. But Luke emphasizes this, this shift. Now Saul believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Why, why is that important? Well, it's because... Saul preaching that Jesus is the Son of God is a primary feature of his conversion. This message is evidence that Saul has radically changed, and that's what Luke wants to show us, that, that Saul has radically changed, and there is no better way to emphasize his change of heart than to say this man, this devoted Jew, is now preaching that Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who lived and who was crucified, that he himself is the Messiah. I mean, literally, the only reason that Saul is even in Damascus in the first place was to arrest Christians for preaching that exact message. To preach that the crucified Jesus was Israel's Messiah was not only blasphemous, but it's insane to someone like Saul. I mean, he's like, I don't understand these people. That's why, he was, that's why he was so zealous. I don't understand how people can be content with this. These people are saying that a guy who came and taught and did miracles and who died, he's dead. How can he be the Messiah? This makes no sense. The Messiah was this promised figure in the Old Testament. You find him all over Isaiah. You find him in the Psalms. You, you find him uh, in a promise made to David. He was going to be the one who was going to reign on David's throne forever. It was going to be a king that would come in the line of David and reign over the whole world. You can't reign from a tomb. You, can, you cannot be a king if you're in the ground. And so, so Saul, he hears this and he's like, no, this is, this is blasphemy. This is insane. Saul's persecution of Christians 
was rooted in his belief that Jesus couldn't possibly be this glorious and victorious figure because he was dead. So what changed for Saul? You see how important this is? What changed for him? He didn't just go and meet with the apostles and hear their story and then say, that makes sense to me. Why was Saul immediately changed? Dramatically changed, radically changed. That was fun. Um, Why? Because he met the real Jesus. When Saul saw the face of Jesus and he heard the voice of Jesus and he received a call from Jesus, everything changed. And that's because there's one factor related to the Messiah that he hadn't considered. He had never considered this before. Resurrection. Sure, messiahs can't reign from the grave. But what if he got up from the grave? What if, what if he conquered not only the Romans or, or God's enemies in the world, what if he conquered their greatest enemy, death itself? Can he reign as king then? You can imagine Saul working this out in his mind. The resurrection of Jesus is such a powerful reality that even a deeply committed Jew and Pharisee like Saul can reject his theology and fully submit to Jesus. Saul realized what I hope each of you have realized, that a crucified Messiah cannot help us, but a crucified and risen Messiah can and does. Saul's new message was clear. Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. He is the Son of God. And now for us as believers, this message is now the central claim of our lives. We have a transformed message, but we also see in Saul and in ourselves, we have a transformed mission. All right, so Saul once persecuted the church. We, we, we saw this in, in Acts chapter uh, 8. We saw this in Acts chapter 9. He is, on, he is ravaging the church. He is going to destroy. He wants to eliminate the, the at minimum, the message of Christianity, if not the Christians themselves. Um, now, Saul has shifted, and now he doesn't want to destroy the church. He wants to help build the church. And notice this marked change in Saul through the skepticism of the people of Damascus. Look at verse, look at verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Um, listen, this, can you imagine... Can you imagine being a Christian in Damascus? And, and you have heard, and it is validated, that a man named Saul is coming to arrest you. He's coming to bind you up and take you and put you on trial in Jerusalem. And, the, and that guy, that guy shows up. And he goes to the very place he said he was going to go to arrest you. And he shows up and he's preaching the same message that you believe. Same message that you believe. Same message. Okay, that's better. He's preaching the same message that you believe. Would you be a tad skeptical? Just, just, just a bit. Yeah, let's move here. Thank you. Yeah, you'd be a little skeptical of that guy. I mean, this could be a ruse. You know, he's, he's trying to make you feel comfortable so that he can round you up. Hey, bring your friends. Listen to Saul, the, the former Jew who is now one of us. 
I mean, they're skeptical of him. But here's, here's the reality, what, what those Christians couldn't have known. Saul had a new commission from a new authority. Uh, the commentator F.F. F. Bruce, he puts it this way. He says, it was to the synagogues of Damascus that Saul had been sent with the commission from the high priest. And to the synagogues of Damascus he went. But instead of presenting his letters of credence and demanding the extradition of the disciples of Jesus, he appeared as the bearer of a very different commission, issued by a higher authority than the high priests. And as a disciple and messenger of Jesus, he announced his master's claims. You see, Saul's new mission was marked by one very clear vision that I want us all to, to, to grasp. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Remember Jesus' commission to, to Saul. Jesus told Saul that he would use him as an instrument to take the news of his death and resurrection to the Gentiles. And then he called Saul to preach the gospel. He says three different crowds. Before the Gentiles, before kings, and before the Jews. And we see Saul in Damascus going from synagogue to synagogue, not rounding Christians up, but rallying Christians around the gospel. We see Saul preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, even to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, who were the very ones that stoned Stephen. And we know from Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells us himself that between his time in Damascus and Jerusalem, he spent three years in Arabia spreading the gospel there. So while Paul's previous purpose in life was to defend Judaism and rid the world of the Christian message, his new purpose in life was to leverage every single part of his being to advance the Christian message to every corner of the world. He caught this vision that the gospel, this news, that Jesus is king is for everyone. You see, Jesus gives us a new purpose in life. And that purpose is to leverage every single part of us, our minds, our hearts, our personalities, our talents, our relationships, our status in the world, our influence, our jobs, to spread the news that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is the king of the universe, and his kingdom is open to you. And this new mission has to begin with a conviction that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for your next door neighbor and it's for the nations. The gospel is for your friends and the gospel is for your enemies. The gospel is for those who are very much like you and the gospel is for those who are very much not like you. I mean, my goodness, the gospel is so powerful, it's even for Alabama fans. It's so deep, sorry, so deep is the grace of God. I can't do, like, if, if we were in Kentucky, I would just, like, bash on Louisville fans, and everyone would laugh because Louisville fans do not exist outside of Louisville. Um, okay. Um, but the gospel, the gospel is for everyone. And without this core conviction, church, this is so important, without this core conviction, we will not follow God's mission. If we limit the reach of God's grace, there will be people in our lives that we will not invite to Jesus. We won't do it. If we're not convinced that the gospel is for everyone, if we'd rather certain kinds of people stay away from our church, then we will be actively rebelling against God's plan for the world. You see, 
Paul, Saul, he has a new mission. So we need to leverage every single part of our lives to advance his mission in the world. How has Jesus transformed your reason for living? How has he transformed it? Because if you have met Jesus, you have to have a transformed purpose for your life. There's no way around it. That's the effect he has on you. I think of uh, a member in our church who uh, has had conversations with me about, about work, and, and he has talked before. I love the, like, his mindset when he thinks about work. He wants to work in such a way that he leverages his schedule to have opportunities to share the gospel with other people. To the point that he is willing to change jobs. He is willing to change jobs if it means that it gives him more space, more abilities to share the gospel with other people. This is the type of mindset we have to have. I've had other people talk about the difficulties in sharing the gospel at work and trying to create space and carve out opportunities to have these conversations with people. It's that mindset. I'm not saying you have to have answers, but you have to start thinking in this way. You have been sent on a new mission, and everything in your life has to center around this mission to extend the gospel to those who have yet to believe. Meeting Jesus radically changes how we live. He gives us a new message and he gives us a new mission. But last point, encountering Jesus also transforms our relationships. And this is where it can get tricky. This is, this is the most convicting, most difficult part, and the most encouraging at the same time. Encountering Jesus transforms our relationships. There are consequences to living this way. There are consequences to living on this new mission given to us by Jesus, and there are consequences to proclaiming this new message. That's never been truer than, than in our country today. Saul's relationships changed. And what he shows us here is that there are built-in effects to sharing this new message and living this new mission. He experienced both rejection and acceptance. First, rejection. Saul was violently rejected by the Jews. Uh, look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I love how Luke can't say window. You know, it's like there's an opening in the wall. It's like, yeah, that's called a window, um, but uh, whatever. Um, uh, maybe it wasn't a window. I, I'll be proven wrong one day. It wasn't. It was just an opening in a wall. He's like, that's why I said it that way. Um, but, I mean, this is really interesting, right? So, so Saul is uh, preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, and, and there are Jews in the city that believed exactly like he did just days before. And so they're like, this is blasphemy. This is insanity. This guy has got to go, especially someone like Saul who wields such influence and is so gifted. He has to go, and so they plot to kill him. And then the disciples who were once really hesitant about Saul are like, no, you're one of us. Let's, let's you know, uh, make your escape. And so they drop it. I just, can you see it? Can you see, like, them putting, a, like, Saul in a basket and just, like, lowering him over a wall so that he can escape? It's, it's wild. But that's how vicious the rejection was. The Jews and the Hellenists, they were doing to Saul what Saul once did to the Christians. Look at, look at verse 28. It continues in verse 28 when he's in Jerusalem. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But, once again, what do we see? They were seeking to kill him. Okay, here's what this tells us. I don't want to exaggerate here. I want to be very careful in, in how I say this. 
but our new message and our new mission may lead to rejection from both the religious and from the irreligious, both from the church and both from, and, and from the world. Um, and, and I say may intentionally, because I don't want us to all have the attitude like, everybody's out to get us. Everybody's out to get us. I can't walk down the street without somebody being against me as a Christian. I'm persecuted. And it's like we want our names in, the, in Fox's Book of Martyrs because someone said something mean to us, you know? And it's like, uh, I don't know if it's quite that bad. Um, so I don't, I don't want to exaggerate. But what we need to see here is that if you begin centering your life on Jesus, your relationships with others might change. And some of you, if, if we said amen in this church, you could say amen to that because you know you've experienced it yourself. That relationships with other people in your life have changed precisely because you're taking following Jesus seriously. It's not, it's not just like another part of your life. It is the central part of your life. Remaining committed to the truth of the gospel and its implications might not make you too popular with others. And the culture that we live in is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian message. We do live in a world that prioritizes, and this is where I want to be really clear and really careful, our world prioritizes empty inclusivity. Empty inclusivity. Meaning that everyone is accepted. Every, every view, every, every, everything is accepted, and, and if you are not accepting of it, then you are going to be rejected. And, and, but it's empty. It's not based in reality. It's not based in truth. It's not, it's not tethered to any system. It's just you believe this about yourself. You believe this about the world. It's fine and true and validated because you believe it. It's, it's subjective truth at its absolute worst. Um, so when we preach a message of not empty inclusivity, but exclusive inclusivity, the culture will repel. You see, as Christians, we also believe that anyone and everyone can be accepted. But we believe that everyone can be included. We believe in inclusivity. But we believe it is exclusively through Jesus. That it's through Jesus that we find acceptance. So we don't need to exaggerate the situation. You are not likely <laughs> going to have to text an elder later this week um, and just to let him know that you're in a Saul-like bab basket escape moment, you know. You're not going to be at, at, at work one day this week and say, hey, they got the doors locked, they got them guarded, um, they're not going to let me out of here because they found out I believed in Jesus, and so bring the basket, bring the basket and get me out. That's likely not going to happen to you this week, so we don't need to exaggerate this, um, but we also don't need to minimize it. It is going to become more and more difficult to maintain Christian convictions in the secular workplace. That does not mean you run from the secular workplace. It actually might mean that you need to be there as long as you can. But it's going to become more and more difficult. And there may come a day, maybe this year, where you are forced to make a decision between compromising your beliefs to keep your job and remaining consistent with your beliefs but losing your job. So I don't want you to be in, under any illusions. You need to listen clearly to the story of Saul. Committing your life to Jesus can and often does lead to rejection. So don't be surprised and be prepared to suffer as, as Saul suffers here. 
Okay, but the, the good news is there's also acceptance or, or reception. While Saul was rejected by the Jews and Gentiles, he was beautifully received by the church. And I want you to notice just a few things here. First, I want you to notice the importance of Saul's acceptance with the church, the importance of it. So look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Do you see how important it is for Saul to be accepted by the church? Saul comes to Jerusalem, and he attempted to join the disciples. He wasn't going to be a rogue. He wasn't going to be on his own. It was crucially important for him to be accepted and welcomed in the body of Christ. It mattered to Saul, and it mattered to the other believers that he be identified as one of them. Now, now why is this so crucial? Well, if we know that we will be rejected in some way by people outside the church, isn't it all the more vital to welcome and accept one another within the church? If we're going to be rejected out there, don't we need to be received in here? And so while we have no confidence that we will be received by those in the world, we should have rock-solid assurance that within the church, we have a place to belong. It deeply matters. Okay, but secondly, we see, I want you to notice the intentional welcome that Barnabas extends. Look at verse 27. So, so the disciples, they don't, they're, they're really hesitant. They're really skeptical of Saul. Um, they, don't, they don't believe that he's actually a disciple. And look at Barnabas, how he steps up. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. This is so beautiful. We need more people like Barnabas in our church. And, and I have seen some Barnabas-like qualities in so many of you. So many of you are so hospitable. So many of you welcome people so intentionally. And, it, and it's, it matters so much. I want you to notice the links that Barnabas went to vouch for Saul. He's saying, he's one of us. I understand your skepticism, but I know what's happened to this man. He is now preaching the same message that we believe. He is now living on the same mission that we've been given. He is a Jesus follower, just like us. He belongs. Now, can you imagine what this must have done to Saul's heart? He comes in. He genuinely is a disciple. He really does believe. He knows his past, though. He knows how checkered his past is. He knows what he has done. And can you imagine how guilt-soaked that moment must have been for him when he was rejected by the disciples? And they were like, no, we don't, we don't believe you. We don't believe you. And Saul himself must have been worried about that going in. And now for Barnabas to step up and say, no, listen, I know this man. He is one of us. He belongs here. He is welcome here. Regardless of his past, he is welcome in this place. And look at the effect it had on Saul. Immediately in verse 28, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Belonging creates boldness. If you know without a shadow of a doubt that you belong and you are accepted on the basis of who you now are in Jesus, this gives you radical freedom and courage to keep on living for Jesus. Now, one more thing to notice here. The grounds for Saul's acceptance. 
Why did they accept him? What confirmation were the other disciples looking for? What standard were they using to identify whether or not Saul really was a disciple? And it's the gospel. It's, it's just the gospel. Does he believe in Jesus? The criteria for belonging that Barnabas gave the other disciples was what? Saul had seen Jesus. Saul had spoken with Jesus. And now he's living for him. He's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's it. Barnabas didn't go in and say, look, guys, we really need Saul on our team. He's so gifted. He's so smart. If we want to advance this message, we need his skills. We need his abilities. Let's bring him on. And then they all get together and say, oh, yeah, you're hired based on your gifting and your skills and your abilities. No. Barnabas says, I know he's not like us. I know what he's done. He's a zealot. He's a Pharisee. He has spoken murder against us. But he's so much like us in the only way that matters. He has now seen and trusted in the risen Jesus. Saul, notice this for Barnabas, Saul belongs to Jesus. And on that basis and on that basis alone, he's able to say, so Saul belongs to us. Because he belongs to Jesus, he belongs to us. Those are the grounds for your belonging in the church. Have you encountered Jesus? Do you believe in him? Are you living for him? It's the gospel that brings us together. Now there's one more word here in verse 31. I want you to see. So we see that the Hellenists are trying to kill him and so whenever the, the brothers, I love how Luke just shifts that phrase from disciples to brothers because it's very clear now that Saul has accepted his brothers make his escape. And he goes back to his hometown of Tarsus. In verse 31, Luke gives us a summary statement. He says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And at first, I kind of laughed because I was like, as soon as Saul left, there was peace. I mean, you know. Um, but this is what happens in a church that is centered on the message and mission of Jesus and welcomes everyone on the basis of the gospel. There's peace. There's strength. There's holiness. We, we will be walking in the fear of the Lord. There's encouragement. There is comfort. And there's growth. This is the experience of a church that has encountered the risen and reigning Jesus. So let's resolve to commit ourselves to this message and to this mission. Let's resolve to welcome anyone and everyone through the blood of Jesus. And then let's trust the Lord to use our transformed lives for his glory no matter what comes.